This is an ABC podcast. My experience has been with these kind of programs that it is um, the kind of activity which is helping to fulfil the dreams of those old people who spearheaded the move back out here into places like Jinnanjara. Australia's final first contact. A doctor from WA's remote Goldfields recounts meeting the last of the desert nomads in the 80s and explores how events like this have shaped social movements in recent Aboriginal history. And on the banks of the Murray River, a school in Victoria is doing things differently, catering to refugee and migrant children to give families and kids the best possible chance of settling into their new home of Australia. They really inspired me. You can do everything in here. You can be whatever you want. You're a woman. It doesn't mean you're not strong. You're very strong. I'm Jessica Hayes and this is Australia Wide. Across Australia, the current minimum age of criminal responsibility is 10. And that's much younger than most other developed nations. But overnight, the Northern Territory became the first Australian jurisdiction to raise the age to 12 years old. Thank you, members. The result of the division is nose 8, the eyes 16. The eyes have it. To talk you through the details of the changes, I'm joined now by Northern Territory political reporter Jessie Thompson, who's based in Darwin. Jessie, what exactly has the Northern Territory Parliament decided? Well, hi, Jess. This is being regarded as quite significant and landmark reform because, as you mentioned at the top there, the NT has now become the first jurisdiction in Australia to raise the age of criminal responsibility above the age of 10. Raising the age was one of more than 200 recommendations made by a a Royal Commission into Youth Detention that handed down its findings more than five years ago now. Uh, And the government is doing it now because it says it wants to intervene uh, earlier and stop young offenders entering a sort of lifelong cycle of crime and it points to expert evidence saying that the earlier that it can stop a young person from entering the justice system, the less likely they are to return there. So under its changes, children who are under the age of 12 can no longer be charged with an offence, they can no longer be prosecuted for an offence. What the government is proposing to do with them instead is refer them to different pathways that will look at addressing some of the problematic behaviour they might have. Uh, And that can be behaviour change programs, it could be the case that their family is referred to intensive parenting programs, but basically they're going to look at the root cause of some of the reasons that these young people go on to uh, commit crimes or uh, a bad behaviour on the streets. So Jesse, there wasn't unanimous support for these changes in the parliament? Uh, There was not. As we heard at the top there, eight people voted against it, and that's basically the entire country Liberal Party opposition, as well as two of our independent MLAs. So the opposition has been railing against these changes for the couple of weeks since they were unveiled, and its concern is that they're being made at a time when there is increasing concern about crime right across the NT, a lot of it committed by young people. And now they say that this legislation sends a message that young people can commit crime and be let off with a slap on the wrist uh, and they'd rather see the Territory Labor government invest in other programs such as uh, community, mandatory community service or jobs and skills programs uh, and they've actually vowed to uh, undo or overturn the legislation if they are elected in two years' time. Now that's interesting because this is a change that's backed up with that expert evidence from the Royal Commission as well as from many Indigenous legal and human rights groups. Uh, so I asked Opposition Leader Leah Fanocchiaro 
if uh, the, her party's commitment to overturn this legislation essentially meant that that Royal Commission w- was a waste of time and money. I think the Royal Commission has done a lot of good, but it's also resulted in a Labor government taking things way too far. We know that since the Royal Commission, crime has gotten worse, not better, and that just shows that the Labor government have completely failed to put the rights of Territorians to be safe above the rights of offenders. Leah Finocchiero, uh, who is the leader of the opposition in the Northern Territory there. So, Jesse, what has the reaction been today across the Territory more broadly? Look, some of those groups that I just mentioned, those Indigenous human rights and legal groups, have welcomed this change. They say it's landmark reform and that the NT is really sort of paving the way for other jurisdictions to follow. Uh, It is important to note, though, that there's a lot of expert evidence, a lot of it produced by those groups, and this was something that the Royal Commission noted, that saying that the appropriate age of criminal responsibility should be 14, not 12, and a lot of groups are still calling on governments around Australia to raise the age to 14. The Northern Territory government says that the, uh, raising it to 12 is just a first step and it intends to review that legislation in about two years' time uh, with a view to increasing it further to 14, depending on how it's going. So when do these changes come into effect? That's a good question, Jess. Uh, they're essentially going to have a delayed commencement, which means that even though it's passed Parliament late last night, it's still a little while off coming into effect. And the government says it essentially wants to buy itself time to uh, invest in and set up some of these alternative pathway programs that those young people will be referred to rather than going to court. As the government says, that will happen in its term of government, which is due, due to expire uh, in August 2024. And I think they're working towards the second half of next next year is is when we'll see that change come into effect. So what does this mean for children aged 10 and 11 who do get into trouble with police now? I mean, what happens? Because youth crime has been a significant challenge for authorities in the Territory, hasn't it? That's right. And and this is one of the key points of concern from some of the groups and people in the community who oppose this change is this important question of what's going to happen to these young people who are out uh, doing the wrong thing now. Uh, now, the government says it's going to refer those people off to different programs, maybe youth diversion programs to look at some of their behaviour. And one of the um, big things it's been emphasising is even though these people will no longer be charged by police, agencies like the Northern Territory Police and Territory Families, which is our child protection agency, agency will still be heavily involved in their case management in figuring out what to do with these young people, uh, even if the courts no longer are. So what do you think this might mean for other jurisdictions around Australia, Jesse? It's a bit of a wait and see. As I mentioned there, this is the, the Northern Territory is now a leader in this space. Uh, previously, it's been interesting. Uh, five years ago, this recommendation, of course, was first made. Uh, since then, we've had a few different attorney generals. But the one of the reasons that was given for why they've waited this long to legislate this change is that they wanted to wait and see what other jurisdictions were doing and maybe follow their lead. Now, there's been plenty of talk in some other states about making this move, including Queensland and, I think, New South South Wales in the past, but it ended up being the case that the Northern Territory was the first to legislate it. Uh, And for the Northern Territory government and many other observers in this space, I think it'll be a case of waiting and seeing now. And I know that some other jurisdictions like the ACT have already unveiled plans to raise the age. They just haven't legislated them yet. And I know with the ACT, they're going to raise theirs to 14, but the legislation is still in that drafting process. So some way off just yet. Jesse, thank you so much for your time this evening. Thanks, Jess. Jesse Thompson, Northern Territory political reporter based in Darwin. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Heading to Jinjinjara country now in central Western Australia, where in the mid-80s the Richter family has emerged from the Gibson Desert. 
They were the last of Australia's desert nomads and they were met by Dr David Scrimgeour. Dr Scrimgeour describes this last first contact encounter in his book, which explores how the defining social movements of the time shaped the way we remember recent Aboriginal history. From the WA Goldfields Esperance region, reporter Julia Batolio spoke with Dr Scrimgeour about this historic meeting. When the Pinto Pinoin emerged from the Gibson Desert in 1984, they were believed to be the last Aboriginal nomads to walk out of the desert. It turned out they were not. Two years later, another family, the Richters, came out of the Great Victoria's Desert. Dr. Scrimger was the first doctor to examine both families and to witness the last forced contact in Australia. just so happened, because I was working in the, these communities, that I was involved with both, both those incidents, one in 84, one in 86, where contact was made with families that were still living out here in the bush. In these occasions, the contact was made not as had happened previously. It hadn't been made by non-Aboriginal people. The contact was between Aboriginal people themselves. It was between Aboriginal relatives, because it was people moving back out into their country who re-established contact with their families that were still here. And I think it was fortunate for those families that the way it did happen, happened because their families were in the process of reoccupying their country, and so it was able to happen in a very culturally appropriate way. Dr Scrimger recounted the last forced contact to ABC in the remote community of Tutunjara, where the Richters live today. But he also wrote a book, Remote as Ever, The Aboriginal Struggle for Autonomy in the Western Desert, which will be released this week. In the book, the Melbourne-trained doctor also talks about how, when he first started working in Aboriginal healthcare over 40 years ago, he got caught between two defining social movements. One of them was what's sometimes called the homelands movement or the outstation movement, the, uh, the movement of people out of larger government settlements and missions back out into their country. The other social movement was the um, Aboriginal community-controlled health service movement. So at the same time that this was happening across Australia, but including amongst those people moving back to their country, there was a desire to have control over their own health services, to employ their own health staff, and to have some control over the way health service was delivered. The need for Aboriginal-controlled health services was evident to Dr Scrimger. I think it was a good model, and I particularly uh, have always felt that as a, a non-Aboriginal medical practitioner, it is much better for me to work in a situation where I am responsible to the local Aboriginal community rather than being responsible to a, a non-Aboriginal company or a non-Aboriginal health department. Uh, if I'm working for an Aboriginal organisation, then I can be more effective because I'm working within a structure uh, which is appropriate for that local Aboriginal community. His experiences in remote Aboriginal communities also allowed him to learn the local language, Pitanjara, and how important it is to preserve it. Language is important. It's, language is a part of culture. And if we, are, if we as service providers out in these communities are not showing respect for the language, making an effort to speak the language as much as possible, then we're really contributing to language decline. And if we're contributing to language decline, we're contributing to cultural decline. So I think it is very important that we, as non-Aboriginal service providers in places like this, recognise the fragilities uh, and do what we can. Dr Scrimger also sees another social movement emerging in remote communities today, which is underpinned by Rangers programs. The current movement, which I have a lot of 
hope for, um, which is really in some ways a sort of continuation of that movement, is the caring for country movement. The um, opportunities that have been created for people who live in remote communities in these communities such as Junyunjara to um, get involved in land management activities, uh, to look, look after the country. My experience has been with these kind of programs that it is um, the kind of activity which is helping to fulfil the dreams of those old people who spearheaded the move back out here into places like Junyunjara. It's, um, uh, it's good for the people who are involved in it. You see these young people going out, they enjoy being out in the bush, uh, they're learning a lot from their older people, they're learning about their country, they're looking after their country, it's good for the country, it's good for them and I've seen their health improve um, just as a result of being involved in these activities. So I'm hopeful that these benefits of land management activities in remote communities will be seen by governments uh, and that will ensure that these activities are allowed to continue but also allowed to, to progress. Caring the country is good for the health of the people and it's good for the health of the country. It's good for the health of the, the whole country of Australia. Somebody's got to look after these vast estates out here in remote areas um, and the people who are obviously the right people to do it are these people out here. Dr David Scrimjaw ending that story from Julia Batolio in WA's remote goldfields. And you can read more about Dr Scrimjaw's encounter with Australia's last desert nomads on the ABC News website. Now taking you away from the mainland and down to Tasmania now, where a mothballed nickel mine has been given a new lease on life. Thanks to blossoming global demand for electric vehicles, nickel is in high demand, which is great news for Mallee Resources, the new owner of the Avebury nickel mine. Mallee believes the world's hunger for nickel, one of the key ingredients used to make electric vehicle batteries, will bolster the viability of the project. From the west coast of Tasmania, reporter Meg Powell went underground to bring you this story. I'm 200 metres underground in the belly of a newly reopened mine on Tasmania's west coast. It's dark and noisy. And in front of me there's two men who have been drilling for hours through solid rock, digging tunnels to get closer to the treasure they're hunting for, nickel. They've been working here for about a month now. Ever since the mine reopened after 13 years in care and maintenance mode. So Joseph, that's Meg. How are you? Oh, you're all good, mate. Oh, <laughs> that's your own. I'll shake you. He doesn't do anything, mate. So you got the wrong coloured shirt. White, yeah, I've already, I've already tipped her about that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, she'll probably come out as clean as you do. Yeah, probably. <laughs> So we're heading um, down the side of the mine, which they call the Avebury side of the mine. There's two sides of the mine at the moment. It's the Avebury and the Viking, both potatoes. This is Pippi, not his real name. He manages the workers who go oh, underground. I don't know about the Avebury, but um, most of the ore bodies are here. I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> I try and spend as much time as I can down here. This is this is where I like being. This is, um, yeah, I like being down with the, with the work, work groups. So um, I really only go to the surface um, by default if I need to go up for meetings or do, any, um, do anything in the office, basically. But I, I prefer to spend most of my time down on the ground, underground. I'd say that's pretty unusual. 
Um, I hear that a fair bit from for a mine manager. I spend too much time underground, some people could say, but um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not swinging a sheet of mesh with visitors here. Not, not in this crap. It's only audio, so it's not just. Yeah. I'll just close that door, mate. Yeah, thanks. There you go, how about that? We're outside the shafts now, standing at the portal. It's surrounded by dense bush, birds, and in the distance, the sound of the ocean. I didn't expect it to be so peaceful out here. Yeah, it is. Like I said, it's, um, it's a beautiful spot. And I said the footprint of the mine is quite small. It gets a little bit noisy with machines coming in out of the mine from time to time, but apart from that, yeah, it's pretty pristine. Now, Pippi, you were... You're from Zan. Were you born yeah. in Queenstown? Yeah, born in Queenstown. I lived in Zan um, all my life. Give or take uh, a little bit of time away working over the mainland, but uh, mostly in Tasmania and majority of it around uh, Ransom Bell Tin Mine, which I came over uh, to Avery about a year and a half ago from. So for this start-up, an opportunity arose to um, do a restart here, which is pretty important for the community, community I grew up in, so I um, thought it would be a good challenge to take on. Juggling the challenge of hiring and housing 200 workers, as well as ensuring the business actually turns a profit, is General Manager John Lamb. He says growing global demand for electric vehicles is key to the mine's success. Why did the mine close in the first place? Low nickel prices, global financial crisis, the, the nickel price got down to about 6000 US dollars a tonne. Um, they couldn't make it work at the time and uh, so they closed their doors. And why reopen now? Well, now is the time for nickel. And one of the things to know about uh, the nickel that is made at Avebury is that it's battery-grade nickel sulphide. So it's the right sort of nickel to go into electric vehicle batteries. And nickel, of course, is the largest component of an EV battery. I heard Elon Musk say uh, a few weeks ago that they really should be called nickel graphite batteries, not lithium-ion batteries. And, of course, the world is rapidly running down the path of decarbonising Car manufacturers are shifting to electric. There's an enormous demand for nickel and somebody's got to produce it. So it's the right time. Mines boom and, and bust. Are you confident that this one is sustainable into the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Obviously, you've got to do what you can to protect yourself. Prices do go through those dips. And nickel is one of the, the worst commodities for that. It's, it's very spiky, uh, very volatile price-wise. Reporter Meg Powell bringing you that story from underground at the Avery Nickel Mine on Tasmania's west coast. ABC Australia Wide. You're off to Mildura now, a city that sits at the top of Victoria on the banks of the Murray River. The thought of arriving in a foreign country town after fleeing conflict in your homeland would be daunting for any adult. But it's a common story for many of the students at the Mildura English Language Centre. This remarkable English language school prepares newly arrived refugee and migrant children for entry into mainstream Victorian education. Reporter Jen Douglas went to school for a day and spoke to assistant principal Claire Kelly. This is Mildura English Language Centre. We run intensive English language classes for new arrival refugees, asylum seekers and immigrants who arrive in Victoria from overseas not speaking English. But the mission is to teach students English 
and equip them with the knowledge and skills they'll need to succeed in mainstream education. So our job is to teach them English, help them settle and the family settle in Mildura and access education and other support services available in the area. Where do some of these children traditionally, what sort of backgrounds do they come from? Are they, they all refugees or from difficult circumstances? We traditionally have had a lot of refugee settlement here in Mildura. Since 2001, the Mildura Rural City Council uh, claimed Mildura as a refugee welcome zone. So we do have a steady intake of refugees, usually from the Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, Afghanistan. Then we've had uh, recently secondary settlements, so refugees that were settled in Melbourne, in the city in Footscray, where I was before. Ames ran a trial program to resettle these refugees in regional areas because there's more jobs and the lifestyle, it was a thought, might be better. What are some of the, the challenges these children face when they first arrive at Melk? Where have they come from and how does that affect their transition? The challenges when they first arrive, the students and the families, especially the refugee families, they could have been displaced for 30 years from their original home village. So when they get to Mildura, this is their first permanent home in maybe 30 years. The challenge is the culture shock and the language shock. That culture shock, that language shock, not understanding anything. Our school here, is so well resourced compared to what these kids are used to. They're used to a dirt floor, no tables, no chairs, one teacher with maybe one book this big, no pencils and paper, personal for each student. The teacher and 50 kids aged 5 to 18. Very different schooling. Many of the refugee students and others come to the language school with carrying a lot of trauma, a lot of memories of what's occurred to them over their time in the refugee camp or escaping the war. So they might come in, they can't speak, they don't speak for six. Some have had kids that don't speak for 12 months. They're just mute because they're so traumatised with what's happened. Over time, as they settle in, they learn English, they make friends, they've learnt to live in Australia, in the Australian school system, they've learnt English, they've learnt how to socialise and the behaviour norms that we have here in Australia, and now they're successfully attending mainstream schools and going on to working, TAFE and other pathways. My name is Saliha Alami. I was born in Afghanistan and then uh, I grew up in Pakistan. We left Afghanistan because that was not safe. Life was a bit different from here, Australia. That was difficult to study, difficult to work outside. You can't be independent. So what would your life have been like if you had have stayed in Pakistan? In Pakistan, most of the girls are getting married like around 17, 18, around 20s. So how did that make you feel that you couldn't continue your education in Pakistan? I just want you to be independent, to, be, to do everything by my own. When I first came to Australia, it was kind of, I thought the same situation, I'm, I'm going to get married and start my life. Because I was thinking, uh, I can't study anymore. And then when I came here and the schools invited me to come and study, I was so shocked. Oh my God, I'm 17, around 17, how can I go start studying from now? They really inspired me. You can do everything. In here, 
you can be whatever you want. You're a woman, it doesn't mean you're not strong, you're very strong. I studied there like one year and they said you can move forward to study in Sanitave. And now like I'm independent, working and doing everything by myself. Hello, I'm Innocent. I come from Burundi and and I am in Australia now and I am a student of NOC. Do you think you speak English well now? Maybe. <laughs> and what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a, pir a pirate, a, pir a pilot for driving airplanes. And I want to be uh, a, a doctor. Burundian student Innocent ending that story by the ABC's Jen Douglas and wishing Innocent and all the students best wishes as they celebrate their graduation in a few weeks' time. And that's it for Australia Wide for this Wednesday. I'm Jessica Hayes. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.